Welcome to the Learning Forte podcast, where we hold conversations with hybrid leaders who are navigating change, experimenting with new ways to form community, and pursuing the common good. Our guests for these episodes are so brilliant and the content so life-giving, we wanted to make portions of them available to all of you. This podcast began as a part of our Strategic Imagination Sandbox, an online learning cohort experience for hybrid leaders. You can learn more about that at www.learningforte.com. While we have plans for more guests on future episodes beyond the scope of the sandbox, for now, we're sharing 15 minute or so portions of longer three-part conversations that have shaped this program. We hope you enjoy and share and find that this content supports your values-aligned leadership in hybrid spaces. We are thrilled to welcome to this episode our guest and friend of Greg and colleague of mine, Jen James, who is the Program and Operations Director at Next Church. I have to let you know that Next Church is a client that significantly contributed to the ideas for the Strategic Imagination Sandbox. When we were working with them a couple of years ago, along with Johnson C. Smith Theological Seminary, I really began to see how learning some of the skills and aspects of community organizing could help me be a better pastor. One of the dreams I have of Strategic Imagination Sandbox is that it's an opportunity to introduce nonprofit and congregational leaders to processes and models from outside our traditional environments that can help us be stronger leaders in those environments. Well, let's get at it. I know that I'm really looking forward to talking to Jen as we've done some work together over the years, and i am really been excited about how she's been leading in the midst of her own changes. Uh, so again, we're thrilled to welcome to this episode Jen James, uh, Program and Operations Director of Next Church. Jen, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Stacy. Uh, I appreciate the invitation to be a part of this and looking forward to our conversation today. So if we were to be sitting around a table at maybe a next church gathering, could you unpack what next church is for us and for those who are listening into this conversation? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, next church at its core truly is a network of leaders. Uh, and it is who is part of that network. Uh, and in its most simple form, it is asking the question, what is next for the church? Uh, and uh, it is, while associated with the Presbyterian Church USA, it extends uh, beyond that with uh, the leaders at the table. Uh, and it is also not underneath the arm of the denomination. So it is not funded by the denomination. Uh, we like to say it is an agitator of the denomination uh, and an advocate uh, of sorts. Uh, and it's really, uh, you know, the, the sort of the threefold way that we do our work is supporting and equipping congregations, developing leaders, and strengthening connections across the church. Uh, and that can take on a variety of forms, uh, but always sort of moving towards that what is next. 
that's a good line when it comes to talking about change. I mean, it, it, it's grounding your work and your organization in the very reality that there's always going to be change. Wondering what is a learning that has shaped your leading in the midst of change? And I know you and Stacy will have a chance to maybe go back and forth on some of these questions. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, what comes to mind is you got to hold things loosely. Uh, I feel like in all of the shifting and turning that has, you know, all the pivoting <laughs> that we have done uh, in the last, you know, several years in particular, uh, that you really have to, you have to hold things loosely. Uh, and, you know, what you think is going to happen is likely not to happen. Uh, and where you think you're going to end up, you may not end up there. Uh, and so I think when we hold real tight uh, to an outcome or, you know, sort of an expectation that we're constantly disappointed and it prevents agility. Um, and that's fascinating. I'm sort of having this aha moment because I spent a lot of time thinking about what enables agility and you've broken open this idea of what prevents agility. And I um, have this sort of, I'm running through a whole series of stories and experiences in my head of when I held on so tight to those plans that I couldn't even see what was best for myself or the community that I was trying to serve that was right in front of me. And I, I do really think that that's an interesting thing about, you know, about what keeps us from being agile. Uh, you alluded to some of it already, but what would you say does prevent agility and leadership in the midst of change? I mean, it's the age old, you know, we've always done it that way. Uh, and, you know, some of that is a lack of imagination. Um, some of that is, you know, a lack of sort of creative muscle building. Uh, but it's, you know, it has to do with control. Uh, it has to do with power. Uh, and so I think you know, there's a whole system that prevents agility. Uh, you know, I don't think the world is designed, our systems are not designed uh, for agility. Sometimes I think that there's actually a piece of loyalty that prevents agility or our perception of what we think we're supposed to be loyal to. I mean, I've been a priest 23 years this month and um, while I, on my best days, I'm really aware that my call is not to the Episcopal Church, it's to a bigger um, transformative experience that God is calling humanity to, there are lots of things that I've been sort of formed to be faithful and loyal to an institution and to the church and to my denomination. And so I think also, I think that um, maybe that's why I'm so convinced that doing values work as a leader is so important is because it helps us disconnect and get clearer about what we're loyal to. Because I think that there are times in which we're trying to be loyal to institutions that in, for some of us in the early parts of our professional careers were really life-giving. And those same structures 20 years later aren't as life-giving. And so what am I, what am I loyal to? Um, and then how can that clarity about values and loyalty help me actually maybe serve that institution better? By, by, I love that word you take, by agitating it. We have to ground ourselves in our values. So I'm wondering if you could unpack a little bit there about how values has grounded your work 
in the midst of seasons of change? I think that values are the light post. Um, you know, how you how you embody those values and the way in which you lead uh, through change in the midst of change, that is really what matters. And sort of the product or the model uh, or how something looks can be secondary. The, you know, when you get really clear about what is the impact we're trying to, to have here? And how do we want to be in the midst of that? Then, you know, the model that you decide upon will point to that and will also embody that, but it is not for its own sake. It's a great image. Values as a light pose, because it what I'm what I'm seeing when <laughs> when you say that is that if you don't have your values illuminated, you don't, you can't see where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. Brene Brown also talks in some of her early books about removing the armor that prevents us from connecting with people. And um, when I was doing the training to be a facilitator for her daring way, the piece that I kept getting hung up on was, okay, but we remove this armor and what do we replace it with? And I mean, like I dug into this with my daring way group, my training group, even in my conversations with some of her trainers. And it was the aha moment was when we replace that unhelpful armor of perfectionism and, um, you know, all of the other isms um, with our values. And it's when we armor ourselves with our values and step into the arena that we can then be both powerful and vulnerable. We can be both afraid and brave at the same moment. And I think that that for me was just this aha moment of when all of that started to make a lot of sense and why I started to really wanted to claim those values. And later on, my theological reflection has been like, I think those really are the armor of Christ. What are those deep values that we hold? And my armor's a my armor of Christ is a little bit different than somebody else's, but it's still serving that same role of helping me that helping me have the courage to be that prophetic voice and that honest voice in the congregations and organizations I serve. I'm wondering um, if you could share a little bit about how the light post of values has been especially beneficial to you in leadership when you have been working alongside those most resistant to change. (laughs) (laughs) No one is resistant to change. Come on now. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that clarity really helps you get distracted uh, because there's a lot of voices out there uh, and Systems by nature don't want to change. Uh, you know, they're they're designed to do what systems do, uh, and people are caught in those systems. And so, I think when you don't have those guideposts or those light posts, you will listen to any voice uh, in order to try to make your way through it, and to really have that clarity of. No, this is the thing we value. And because of that, this is the decision that we will make. And I think it also helps other people to sort of see that same thing. You may have 
disagreements about how you're going to get there or what the end product's going to look like or, you know, what color the carpet's going to be or, you know, all the things that we fight about in the church. But I think when you have sort of that common clarity of like, no, no, these are the things we're going to value, then it sort of helps everybody turn in the same direction. Uh, and there's still going to be, you know, we're not, we're not a monolith. We're not all going to think the same thing. Um, but it is a starting place to really help people sort of filter, you know, what it is that they're, they're resistant to and why. <laughs> if there's anything that leaders in various contexts and communities share, it's, it's that we are all navigating change in some way, shape or form, right? And that's kind of a, a tagline for this month's movement uh, is that change is our collective reality. But we also know that our relationships with change may be just as diverse as the communities that experience them, <laughs> right? And we've talked a little bit about like top level experiences of change. Let's get a little bit vulnerable and personal here. I'm wondering how your relationship with change has evolved over the years, especially recently. Uh, well, this is fun because, you know, uh, as a kid, I was like one of these kids who would change their bedroom around like every couple months. Uh, I, I loved change. Uh, you know, I was like, that desk doesn't have to be here. Let's try it over here. You know, let's, uh, you know, let's just, I would like change the direction of how I slept on my bed just because I could. Uh, and so change has always been something for me that has almost been an adrenaline rush. You know, it's been something that I've just sort of loved to push the boundaries on, uh, you know, what, how much can I change? Uh, I, I have a, you know, my, my philosophy on rules is that you learn rules so that you know how to break them. Uh, and because I that level of engagement with change can also be destructive uh, and unhealthy, right? Change for change's sake uh, is almost just as bad as resistant to change. And so I think over time, I have really thought about you know, what is the impact of the change, uh, you know, and maybe the impact of, you know, nine-year-old Jen changing her room around was, you know, had to do with my parents, right? Like, because I could, this was my space, uh, you know, but like, really, what is that, what is the impact that you are trying to achieve with that change? And really being smart about change and when you make it, why you make it, and how you make it, and how do you get to that impact or outcome that you're trying to achieve and, and let change be how you get there. One of the things that I value most about you is how you regularly expand beyond tools and the in-person and online dichotomy and towards the who related to hybridity. Uh, and I've learned from you to even move beyond inclusive. And I think you introduced me to how we talk about expansive networks of leaders for similar reasons. And so I'm wondering how has your understanding of hybridity expanded over the last few years in your work and, and what led you to that shift? Mm. Um, well, shout out to Alex McNeil, who I think was the one who introduced the term expansive to me and Alex 
uh, is a great advocate uh, coach uh, who used to work uh, for More Light Presbyterians, which is an LBGTQ inclusive uh, advocacy group. I think the best way to illustrate uh, this idea of expansive versus inclusive uh, is before I worked for Next Church, I was in a, con- a local congregation doing uh, Christian education type work, and I had advocated for a change in the language when people join the church. And you know, each denomination has their own sort of like set standard liturgy uh, that they read out when so- when people join the church. And for me, when someone comes and joins the church, oftentimes the church says, you know, oh, we welcome you. We're so glad you're here in Christian love, you know, the body of Christ, yada, yada, yada. Uh, And it's this idea that you have joined us here. And we're so glad that you are now a part of us. And expansive shifts that to say, we're so glad you are part of this family. We will never be the same again because you are here. Thanks be to God. And so actually the term that we've been trying to lean into is expansive inclusivity, which is a little bit of an oxymoron, uh, but you know, it's delightful in, in that it is. It's a hybrid uh, term. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, you know, I do think there is, um, when, when new people or when you broaden the table, is it is it for the benefit of the table that exists? Or is it just an expansive understanding that we're all now different, that the body, that the organism is now different because you're here? And if that is true, then that changes how we might do things or the language that we might use or the ways in which we gather. Um, it might even change and shift the things that we value. Uh, and so, you know, I think one of the places I've seen this is we have this sort of uh, insatiable appetite for diversity. and. You know, the real question that we try to ask is who benefits? It's one of the questions that we ask across the board in our work. And so when you have, you know, a very white church and and they are desiring to become more diverse, and we want to be more inclusive, we want to have sort of a racial diversity, the question is who benefits from that diversity? And is it just a benefit to the white people so that the the white people in the church don't feel bad that their church is all white? And has the church really shifted and changed um, as a result of people being there? Well, that's a beautiful word. And I know that it's come from a a long labor um, for you as a leader and, and your team and the larger organization that you serve. That's a powerful, powerful word. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Learning Forte podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it in your social spaces. 
If you're interested in learning more about the Strategic Imagination Sandbox or enrolling in an upcoming cohort, be sure to visit our website at www.learningforte.com.